You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everybody and welcome to Who Did What Now? The history podcast that's not your history class. With me, your host, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books. Did you miss me because I bloody missed you? Oh, it's been so long. It's been, what, like a month maybe since I last recorded? And yeah, even then it was a struggle. It was so, so tough. Like, I remember having my friend Paul on because it took us several hours to record because I had to keep taking breaks and, like, dealing with the pain in my mouth, my jaw, and my throat. Like, it got to the point, I think, a couple weeks ago, after going to three doctors, that my mouth, my palate, my tonsils ended up ulcerated. And I see this third doctor who's like, first question he goes to me is, are you stressed? Sir. Doctor, sir. I have ADHD and anxiety. Stress is my default, you know, speed. I just, I just... So then he's like, this is definitely a symptom of an underlying issue. And he orders like a blood work done, right? So I go to the nurse, I'm sitting down, I'm getting ready to get my bloods. And she takes one look at me and goes, yeah, I'm going to order a few more. Have you eaten this morning? I'm like, no. And she's like, great, I can put you down for fasting and we'll check you for this, this and this. And she's scribbling all these notes, adding like four or five more tests on. It was a good few. And... Yeah, I get a phone call from the doctor going, yeah, I'm sorry, but we need you to come in for more bloods. So that's what I'm doing tomorrow. I'm getting more bloods taken. (laughs) It was so sweet. He was like, I'm sorry. (laughs) And I've spent so much money on medicine the past week. I, uh, I mean, I can talk again, which is good, but still, it's so expensive. And I have to get an ultrasound on my liver. Because um, apparently my liver is not looking good. Like the, the stuff isn't adding up. But there's a possibility I might just have an autoimmune disease, which would explain things and at least stuff like that's manageable, you know. Um, it it could be something much worse. And but we'll find out. We'll find out. So I'm trying not to stress about it too much. I mean, the money situation is is stressing me out quite a bit. But also, it's my birthday next week, so if anybody would like to donate to my PayPal, link is in the description down below. Listen, I'm I'm collecting pennies at this point, rubbing together and hoping for luck. It's just been, it's drained me, it's drained my bank account so much, and I still have like one final payment left for my kids' holiday for their Christmas. I'm taking them to Disneyland Paris for four days. And it's all, it's all, it's all, I'm struggling a wee bit. Um, especially considering the person I was seeing um, owes me so much money. And I genuinely don't know if I'm ever going to see it back. And that is, it's tough. Not just because my relationship ended the day before an award ceremony I had to go to with my boss who had forked out for all these tickets for us. I ended up taking a friend instead, so it wasn't too bad, but it's still... 
it's been a lot going on and it's it's just kind of taking its toll on me I think and you know what I think I might just do like a live video and just talk about stuff so people can ask me questions and I can fill you all in on what's been happening so many things so many things have been going on oh and before I forget the live show at Hysteria with uh, Ali O'Rourke who opened for me she's fabulous it was so good it was so good I I was in pain but I loved it and it was fabulous and I want to do more I've got the bug for it now it didn't record so that is the story I'm telling you today because here's the thing I have been dealing with all this other stuff so I didn't have time to get research together or new research and I wanted to make sure that I brought something back to you because it's been so long and you deserve this. But I know what you're thinking, you're thinking quit your jibber jabber and fact me. In fact you I will, but first we've got to get our source on. Our sources are The Journals of Mary Shelley by Mary Shelley Finding Mary Shelley in her letters by Betty T. Bennett Mary Shelley in Her Times, also by Betty T. Bennett. Mary Shelley by Muriel Spark. Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin Shelley. The Female Author Between Public and Private Spheres by Mitzi Miles. Mary Shelley, Her Life, Her Fiction, Her Monsters by Anne K. Meller. Mary Shelley, Romance and Reality by Emily Sunstein. And, of course, our favourites, Biography.com and History.com. Are you sitting comfortably? Good. Then let's begin. Mary Shelley was born Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin in Somerstown, London, in 1797 at 11.20pm. You're thinking, jeez, Katie, that's fucking specific. It is. It is specific. Because her father wrote it in his diary. You know how little information we have of women from the past? Women from the past? It's fine. Shh. It's okay. Women from the past? Yeah. We're lucky to get a birthday. We're lucky to get a month. You know? Sometimes we're lucky to get a fucking year. And here we have a time of birth? Like, that is some fastidious timekeeping. That's all I'm saying. Very good at your notes. So her mother is Mary Wollstonecraft, who's basically seen as the first feminist. She's this feminist philosopher, writer, educator, and her father is philosopher, novelist, and journalist William Godwin. So Mary is Mary Wollstonecraft's second child, and her first daughter is called Fanny. So Fanny was the product of this previous relationship she had with this dude in France who they were living together. Um, Fanny was born out of wedlock and then um, himself just buggered off basically and left her to deal with the child on her own. Mary Wollstonecraft, she actually dies not long after giving birth. Basically a bit of the placenta gets stuck and so she catches a fever and, well, she dies. Which honestly isn't too unusual for the time. Like, one of the leading causes of death in women in the past, apart from men, is childbirth. So Mary's parents are into this concept of free love. That's right, it existed well before Woodstock. So neither of them wanted to get married, but it's the 1700s. And they did not want Mary to be born illegitimate. Because they knew, even then, that the easiest thing to gain and the hardest thing to lose, if you were a woman, is a reputation. Now you'd think with Mary's mother dying in childbirth, or just after, that this would sort of leave a shadow on Mary's life and bring up some kind of resentment. But Mary isn't put off by death. And her mother's grave is her happy place. Like, it's her safe space. It's her good place to go, you know? And she even learns to write her own name 
by tracing the letters on her mother's headstone. And she basically spends, I mean, probably a bit too much time there, but she's there. Now, when Mary is one year old, Godwin, her father, publishes memoirs of the author of A Vindication of the Rights of a Woman. Now, Godwin, uh, he does this in good faith, right? He is trying to share this powerful, wonderful, just woman and her life, her history, her ideas, her plans. Like, he thinks he's doing a good thing. He thinks the world is ready for this. Spoiler alert, it's not. So yeah, he does this in good faith, but it absolutely destroys Mary Wollstonecraft's reputation. Like, her family, her blood relatives, are livid. Like, they are well pissed, you know? And her name is Mud for like two centuries because men are tits. Because her life is seen as scandalous and full of debauchery. Because she has affairs and romantic partners and an illegitimate child. As if men didn't have those too, but of course, society. So that being said, the first few years of Mary's life are relatively happy. She's brought up to cherish her mother's memory. Like, it's not hidden from her, it's not, you know, pushed as this awful thing or that, you know, Baby Mary caused it. No. Could you see that a lot? Like, oh, it's your fault your mother died. No. It's a crappy surgical procedure that went wrong. Like, they couldn't get the placenta out. It fucking happens. Like, now there's, you know, ways to remove it. Back then, not so much. Anyway, Mary reads her mother's memoirs and works. And she's kind of home-educated. So, like, the first few years of her life, it's not really a formal education. And Godwin, he's raising Mary and Fanny at this point. You know, so he's not a dick. But he is in massive debt and gets supported by fans. But, of course, the philosopher, journalist, whatever, is struggling. And he feels like he can't raise these kids alone. So when Mary is about four... He remarries, and he weds Mary Jane Claremont, a widow with two children and a good education. And Godwin, he is devoted to his new wife, but his pals absolutely despise her. Like, they refer to her, and I quote, as quick-tempered and quarrelsome. Like, maybe she's just sick of your shit. But that's just me. Anyway, Mary is uh, not so devoted to her stepmother and th- effectively goes on to resent her. Basically, as the story goes, Mary Jane Claremont preferred her own kids, Charlie and Claire, and treated Fanny and Mary as lesser. So Mary has some additions to her family and her father's trying to, you know, be better. And so he sets up a publishing farm which sold children's books, maps, games and stationery. It does not do well. In fact, it barely ticks over. And Godwin ends up robbing Peter to pay Paul. And this results in Godwin almost being sent to a debtor's prison on more than one occasion, so, you know, not exactly the most secure of childhoods. So back to Mary's education. Her dad teaches her, um, and then she ends up getting a governess. Although I don't know how he could afford that, considering, you know, the continuous debt. So she gets all of this sort of rounded education, just her dad's making sure she's not an idiot, really. He's making sure she's smart. And so, on top of, you know, doing these outings and getting this learning going on, they get visitors. Like, all of these smart fellas are 
coming in and effectively hosting salons around her, including Aaron Burr, sir. That's right, the dude who shot Hamilton. He was there, sharing thoughts with Mary Shelley. Like, what? This is the crossover I did not expect, to be honest. I mean, who expected Aaron Burr, sir? Listen, I think it sounds better in a Scottish accent. Aaron Burr, sir. That was very affected, but like, you know what I mean, get get someone with like a nice thick accent to do it. Oh, it's so good. Anyway, when Mary is 14, she goes to boarding school for six months. Mm-hmm. The next year, she's being sent away to live with the political radicals, the Baxters, up in Scotland. Was she sent away for being bold, or was it for some malady? To the seaside, to the country, to Scotland. For the good of your health, of course. Like, dear Victorian doctors, send me to the seaside for my health. Please. <laughs> I say that as if I don't live next to, like, the coast. But yeah, um, at this point, Mary is referred to as bold, impetuous, and strong-willed. And that's from her father. Like, he's like, Mary, yeah, she's... She has opinions. Well, see, here's the thing. Like, parents can be weird like that sometimes. Like, you raise your children to have independent thought and to question things and to have opinions. And then you are shocked that they, you know, question things and have opinions. But yeah, her relationship with her father is weird. They're, like, simultaneously close but also really cold. It's it's fucking weird. That's all I'm saying. So when she returns from Scotland, when she's, what, 16, who does she meet but Percy, bitch, I mean, whoops, Bish Shelley. And he's kicking about because he is a massive fanboy of Godwin. He's a radical poet and a member of the aristocracy. And um, why did Godwin keep him around? Probably because he promised to bail him out of debt. The stepmom, however, does not like him. At all. In fact, she's like, that's a fuckboy. And you know, I'm kind of inclined to agree with her. Because Percy has been flirting with all of the eligible maidens in the house. And she was not about that. Fanny, Claire and Mary. So these are all, like, teenage girls. Maybe Fanny's close to her 20s at this point, but they're all young women. Unfortunately for Percy, because he was very fucking loud about his belief in Godwin's economic policies, his family made it very difficult for him to access the family funds. You see, they weren't exactly keen on him taking their hoarded wealth and distributing it amongst the disadvantaged. And after a few months, it becomes bloody apparent that Percy is not going to pay off her dad's debt. And uh, Godwin is, well, naturally, he's pissed. He's like, you pinky promised, mate. You were going to help me out. Now, he's already angry, but he is about to get even angrier. Because Percy is having rendezvous with Mary. Let's break this down a wee bit. First of all, she's 16, he's 21. Too much of an age gap. I'm sorry, at that age, too much. Secondly, he's married with a kid and another on the way. So, they are spending time together. They are promenading around the graveyard and it becomes their meeting spot, their special place. So special, in fact, that OG goth babe Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin loses her virginity on her mother's grave. On the 26th of June, 1814, they declare their love for each other, and they do the deed. Upon the very grave of her mother, an activist who argued and believed in free love, it's I don't know, symbolic or something. Again, 
feel the need to stipulate this. Percy is still married. And actively married at that. Remember, this is June. And in March of that year, he remarried Harriet because there was questions about the legality of their Edinburgh wedding. So they get remarried, right? He doubled down and then impregnated her. So yeah, not that estranged, to be honest. Now, Percy, he decides to tell Godwin that he is going to leave his pregnant wife for Godwin's 16-year-old daughter. Now, Godwin, as you might imagine, is less than thrilled and straight up banishes him and then bans Mary from seeing him. It's almost as if, hear me out, it's almost as if parents aren't super keen on hearing you're enacting free love with their offspring. Nobody wants to hear the details of you boinking their daughter. And if they do, that is not a family tree you should want to be a part of. Just over a month after this event, or as I like to call it, the haunted hanky-panky, Mary and Percy elope to France. Now, I say elope. They, they run off to France and bring along Mary's stepsister, Claire Claremont, who Percy may or may not have been shagging. Now, Mary, I understand that you're 16 and in love, but maybe, you know, Maybe don't abscond to Europe with this dude who has a pregnant wife who's also knocking boots with your sister. Because, yeah, that's not a good time. That's a Jerry Springer episode. Anywho, before they go, Percy arranges a loan, which he gives to Godwin and Percy's pregnant wife, Harriet. Basically, as a way to appease them, while Percy, Mary and Claire fuck off to France. Now, of all of the people to try and play the hero in this scenario, in a bold and, you know, worthy move, I must say, the stepmom follows them to Calais. That being said, Percy somehow persuades her that it's all good. And so she just goes back home. Like, without Mary or Claire. Like, how good was his gift of the gab? Like, I know he's a poet, but to be that convincing to a woman who clearly takes no shit? I don't know. I don't know. So, yeah. um, The three amigos traverse across war-ravaged France. From Calais to Paris. And they're going by carriage, by donkey, by mule, and they walk, you know, because France is war ravaged, because, you know, Napoleon, that whole thing. It's, it's, it's the Napoleonic Wars. And this is like a really common thing. It was um, battlefield tourism, like rich people would just travel around to battlefields and shit. Why? You should not do that. That is not a fun excursion. What is wrong with the Georgians? I mean, apart from the obvious, but oh my god. But yeah, at this point, Shelley is in massive debt. Like, they're running out of money. And so he writes to Harriet, his pregnant wife, to meet him in Switzerland to give him cash. To, you know, fund his threesome. And, again, in a move I can completely respect, Harriet doesn't show. And, of course, the three of them run out of money and they have to turn back. So they go through Germany and the Netherlands and then they're back in England by September. So this is, like, July that they've buggered off. So they had a couple months touring. They're having a good time, clearly. Now, when they return to England, Mary is pregnant and she is not doing well. Something that is not helped by her father 
because he wants absolutely nothing to do with them. And Mary, so she's confused at this and she's upset because she's practicing what he preached. You know, it's free love, it's this, it's that. And upon seeing it in his daughter, he is not keen. So Mary, Percy and Claire, they're broke. They've got no support and they're stuck together. So they all move in together. And while they're living together, while Mary is pregnant, and Percy is stooping her stepsister, Harriet, his wife, gives birth to his son. And Percy, he is living his best life. He is talking about it, and he's excited about it, and he is just going on and on and on. Like, he is ecstatic at this news. I mean, he's also dodging creditors and leaving Mary feeling abandoned. Like he's leaving her alone to deal with all this stuff. With all of her pregnancy hormones, we're talking about how amazing the fact that he's got a son is. Like it's, it's, it's not easy for her. And again, she's young. She's a teenager. And so through all of this, Percy's friend Hogg becomes a close friend of Mary. Percy wanted them to become lovers, but their relationship never went further than friendship. Now Mary, she believed in free love, in principle, but in practice, like she was monogamous and she was devoted to Percy. Now, in February the following year, she gives birth to a baby girl, Clara, who unfortunately passes away 10 days later. And Mary, she is depressed and distraught and Hogg ends up moving in for a bit because frankly, she needs the support. She needs it. And so by May of that year, Mary demands that Claire moves out because she just can't. She can't deal with it anymore. In August of that year, Mary and Percy decide to move and he publishes a poem that is not well received. And surprise, surprise, it is not long before Mary is pregnant again. By January 1816, Mary gives birth to William Shelley and Percy is fucking delighted about having another son. But he is trying to hash out like money negotiations with his father and with Godwin and Harriet and it's a very stressful situation and Mary who's postpartum has to deal with all of this shit and on top of that she has to deal with Percy's full mental breakdown like he's you know having meltdowns and hallucinations and now I I'm not one to put someone down when they're suffering a mental illness however with Percy oh no if it isn't the consequences of my own actions and because Percy's preference is to run away from his problems instead of you know actively dealing with them, he is consistently talking about leaving for the continent. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. 
We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. In May 1816, Mary, Percy, their son William, and Claire go to Geneva to spend the summer with Byron, who got Claire pregnant, and she just kind of wanted to come along because of this. So they get to Geneva, and weather-wise it's um, not great. It's known as the year without summer. It is wet, rainy, and absolutely dismal, or dricht, as my mother would call it. So Byron and his doctor, John William Polidori, rented a villa close to Lake Geneva. And Percy rented the smaller Maison Chapuis. And it is a frolicking time. They're boating, they're having late night soirees, they're sharing stories. And one night they're sitting around a log fire, telling each other ghost stories. And Byron dares. No. Double dares. No. Virginia dares everyone to write a ghost story. And Mary, she struggles to think of anything. Like every day she's asked if she has a story. And every day she says no. And she's like actually getting embarrassed at this point because she's thinking, I should have thought of something. And every day, writer's block... It's blank. There's nothing coming to her. And then one day, they're discussing galvanism, which is basically, you know, electroshocking a corpse. Because if you shove an electric current through a body, it'll move. There'll be twitching going on. Remind me to tell you the story about the zombie kitten sometime. But anyway. One night, Mary cannot sleep. And she is fueled by nightmares. And so she starts writing. And she writes, it starts off as this short story. On June 16th, 1816, Mary Shelley writes her first draft of Frankenstein. Now, she ends up writing it and rewriting it, you know, with the encouragement of her husband, I might add. Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. Now, there's arguments about Percy's involvement, um, but if you actually look at the work, it's no more than what a regular editor would do. It's, you know, it's a thing. And Percy and Mary, they were known to, like, edit each other's work. But it is more often assumed that he has a much greater involvement, like, especially over time, because no one wanted to admit that a woman invented an entire genre, science fiction. A 16, 17, 17 17-year-old girl invents an entire genre on a dare. Like, Frankenstein itself, the book, isn't published until 1818 and it's published anonymously. And people assume it's Percy so much so 
Um, because it's dedicated to William Godwin, you know, Mary's father, but everyone knew that was Percy's idol. So, because of this, people just assume it's Percy. And they do this so much that she just goes, fuck this for a game of soldiers. And Mary claims it as her own. And remember as well, at this point, women would have had to have written under a nom de plume anyway at this point. Because, you know, women writing books? Ha ha! But how would they have babies? Apparently, pretty easily. Look at Mary. I'm just saying. But anyway, back to Frankenstein. Now, what I love about the novel is that Victor Frankenstein spends most of it sulking. Like, I'm not, I'm not joking. He spends 90% of Frankenstein, the modern Prometheus, just brooding around all pouty and petulant instead of literally doing anything else. Like, direct quote for you. My only solace was silence. Deep, dark, death-like silence. Alright there, emo boy Victor Frankenstein. Like, it's almost as if, don't quote me, I'm just kidding, you can absolutely quote me. Yeah, it's almost as if Mary Shelley was inspired by someone she knew. <coughs> Byron. <coughs> Listen, Byron was an arse who deserves everything he gets. Fuck that guy. I mean, Byron is a big old bisexual mess. Like, honestly, massive gay crisis. And the epitome of fuck around and find out. Because he did. He fucked around and he found out. Not only... Did he have to leave England in scandal? He shagged his sister. I'm sorry, no, that's incorrect. Half-sister. Apparently, the distinction is important. Although I do not really see the point in arguing semantics when it comes to ejaculating into a blood relative. And, oh yeah, Byron, another fun fact for you, Byron was so worried about getting fat, he replaced water with vinegar. Which is actually what caused his fever. Which killed him. But back to Mary. So in September 1816, they returned to England and moved to Bath. And Claire ends up living nearby Mary and Percy, um, basically to hide Claire's pregnancy because again, they're trying to protect our reputation. So, when they're there in Bath, Mary gets letters from her older sister, her half-sister, Fanny. And these letters are depressing letters. Unhappy life letters. And on October 9th, they receive what is referred to as an alarming letter. Which caused Percy to just bolt out the house. He went racing to find her. He did not. The very next day, Fanny Emily's body was discovered at an inn in Swansea, in Wales. She had left a suicide note and an empty bottle of laudanum. You see, Fanny was in love with Percy. And this made it sting all the more because this sent Mary into a deep depression and things were only going to get worse because on the 10th of December Harriet Shelley, Percy's wife, her body is found in the Serpentine Lake in Hyde Park. She had been left by her new lover Pregnant and awash with melancholy, she drowned herself. Now, because of society, 
both of these deaths were hushed up. Because the families did not want this getting out because, well, scandal. And everybody loves a gossip in the Georgian era. Now, with Harriet no longer in the picture, Percy is trying to get custody of his children, and Mary is full on board supporting that. Who's not supporting that is everybody else. Like, everybody. Family members, clergy. Like, the kids end up with the clergy because, yeah. So, in order to strengthen Percy's case, on the 30th of December, 20 days after Harriet's body is discovered, Mary and Percy are married at St. Mildred's Church. And lo and behold, this may shock you, Mary is pregnant again. So in January 1817, Claire Claremont gives birth to a baby girl, Alba. And by March, Percy is declared unfit to be a parent and, yeah, this is when the church takes the kids. That's obviously before Percy's father gets involved, but, yeah, they're like, no, this is not, this is not happening. So, the Shelleys move to Marlow with Claire and baby Alba. And in September of that year, Mary gives birth to a baby girl, Clara Evina. And sort of during this time as well, Mary is editing journals and finishing off Frankenstein. But, um, yeah, everybody's health at this point, not tip top. People are not doing great. You know, Mary's not doing well and Percy is often buggering off because he's trying to avoid debtor's prison, just like Mary's dad was. And Percy finally gets his wish. And they move to the continent. And by the continent, I mean continental Europe. Because that's just what they called it back then. Because, you know, they felt like it. So in March 1818, Claire, Alba, Mary, Percy, William and Clara 2.0 go to Italy. And the reason they're going there is to hand Alba off to Byron who agrees to raise her, but only if Claire has absolutely nothing to do with her. So yeah, he takes her, pushes all his money into it, and he changes her name to Allegra. Because he wants to. Because he didn't like Alba. So he changed her name. Because he could. And so... Claire and the Shelleys are travelling about, they're roving, they are, kind of, add about this, collecting people and they're moving from place to place. Like, in a way, it's kind of like they're trying to create their own sort of community, but, mm, they're not, they're not doing it well. And, uh, yeah, tragedy, tragedy strikes in Italy. Because in September 1818, Clara passes away from dysentery. And in June 1819, in Rome, William passes away. And shockingly enough, Mary is depressed as fuck. And Percy writes, because he's an absolute gobshite. Oh Mary, where hast thou gone? Where hast thou gone? I don't know, Percy. For somebody who is supposed to be incredibly intelligent, have you considered reading the fucking room for once in your entire privileged life? Where is the audacity? It is up Percy Bish Shelley's arse. I don't know what about this situation seems difficult to comprehend but maybe just maybe the strain and the pain of losing all of her children that's right you know your children all of her children are dead her sister is dead her life is full of scandal 
And the person who's supposed to be her partner, her lover, her supporter, is fucking her other sister. I don't know, Percy. What the fuck do you think? Also, in addition, furthermore, just to show how much actual audacity this fucking arsehole has, he's still having sex with Mary. Because by the 12th of November, 1819, there's another baby. Percy Florence Shelley is born. And Mary Shelley, like, she is an involved mother. Like, she takes time with her children. She breastfed them. She was an involved mother. She was a good mother for the most part. Or at the very least, she tried to be because she genuinely cared. She loved her family. Now, Italy was supposed to be this respite um, of political freedom where they wouldn't be judged, where they would have freedom to discuss ideas and be creative and it would be a distraction from all of their loss. And Mary ends up in this sort of love-hate sort of feeling for Italy because it was supposed to help her husband and it took her children from her. Like, it was supposed to heal him not take from her. And it did, and that's how she felt. But in Italy, at least, she did have the option to get creative, and she writes, she fucking writes, she writes Matilda and Valperaja, which are novels, and she writes plays like Persephone and Midas, and she does this although she is ill, or pregnant, or both. And all the while, Percy was dipping his spoon in every other honeypot. And Mary, she was not having physical affairs. Like she had male friends, but the closeness, that closeness, it is more aligned with love and not platonic. So it's more like emotional affairs, I suppose. Nothing physical. But anyway. But yes, the Shelleys and Claire, they go to Naples. And in 1819, Percy registers a child, Elena Adelaide Shelley, who's two months old. And he registers her to him and Mary. Except it's not Mary's. There's a possibility that it's a servant's or it's Claire's. Or maybe they just found her and decided to take her with them. Maybe it's some weird kind of adoption. Maybe it was one of Byron's, but... Mary says she'd know if it was Claire that was pregnant. So this kid wasn't hers, and it wasn't Claire's. It was just... another child. Which is probably the result of Percy shagging a servant. But... More tragedy. Elena Adelaide passes away in June 1820. And Mary travels from Naples to Rome. And there she writes Valerius, the reanimated Roman. Now she might be getting some writing done, but Mary is not happy at this point. She is struggling. And she continues to struggle for the next few years, but in 1822, Mary is pregnant again. And she moves to the Villa Magni with Percy, Claire, and the Williams, Edward and Jane Williams. And it's during the summer that Byron said's word that Allegra died of typhus. And not long after that, Mary suffers a miscarriage, also known by the official medical term as a spontaneous abortion, which almost kills her. She loses a fuck ton of blood. Luckily, Percy is only half of an idiot and puts her in an ice bath instead of just waiting for the doctor to show up. 
and, you know, do nothing. So he might be a dick, but he did save her life. So he gets one. One for you, Percy. So, Mary, shockingly, is depressed. Like, she's suffering and struggling because, you know, she's had a miscarriage. Her children are dead. Her adopted child is dead. Her sister is dead. You're shagging her other sister. And she's so fucking alone. And because she's struggling with all of this, Percy is spending more time with Jane Williams. And a lot of his poetry at this point is written about Jane. Nothing like rubbing salt in the wound, is there? So yeah, over in Italy, a bunch of the the romantics, they're together. And they plan to launch a radical magazine called The Liberal. And on the 8th of July, 1822, Percy goes out on a boat with Edward Williams and a boat boy. And when they're out, there is this massive storm. And ten days later, the bodies wash up on a beach. And Byron, just using his critical thinking skills, creates a funeral pyre and cremates Percy's body on the beach. Now, for whatever reason, Percy's heart does not burn. It just calcifies. And this calcified heart is taken by Mary. And she wraps it up in Percy's love poems and takes it with her. And ends up using it as a paperweight. And after suffering yet another tragedy in her life, Mary is widowed. And she goes to live with Lee Hunt and her family in Genoa for a while. And Mary decides that she wants to make a living by writing. And by July 1823, she says goodbye to Genoa and returns to England and stays with her father and stepmom, because clearly they've worked out their issues at this point, or at the least, they've matured, one can hope. And she tries to get some money for her son, Percy Florence Shelley. And she does this by contacting his paternal grandfather, Percy Shelley's dad, Sir Timothy Shelley. And Timothy promises cash if he's appointed Percy Florence's guardian. And uh, Mary is not about that. She straight away says no. Like, nope, you're not getting him. Because again, she's a really involved mum. And eventually she does manage to acquire a small allowance. But there are some strings attached to this. Because Sir Timothy does not want more scandal upon his family name, he vows to stop the allowance if any biography of Percy Shelley is published by Mary, or if Mary contributes and is known to. And then things change up a wee bit because Charles Shelley, the son of Percy's first marriage, passes away in 1826 thus making Percy Florence Shelley the heir to the Shelley estate. Now, this causes Sir Timothy to raise the allowance, but he is still a dick to Mary. And Mary, she's she's trying to like keep her friendships going, she's trying to be involved, and she's still close with Jane Williams for a time. This friendship ends when Jane tells her that Percy preferred her to Mary because Mary was an inadequate wife. Now, some people say violence is not the answer. I say it depends on what the question is. And I think Mary should have bitch slapped her because fuck you, Jane Williams. That is a dick move. You're an absolute prick. Like, who does that? Anyway, Mary 
cuts her ties and moves on with her life, and in 1826 publishes The Last Man. And she assists her pals in writing memoirs for Byron and Percy. What? People don't know she's involved. She's just, uh, helping out. Prove I was there, man. Prove it. So, sometime after this, she meets American actor John Howard Payne. And he proposes to her. <laughs> and this is absolutely savage. She rejects him, saying that after being married to one genius, she could only marry another. Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin Shelley. That was harsh. I mean, it's funny, but it was harsh. Now, Mary might be, you know, an absolutely salty bitch, but she's also, like, an ardent feminist before feminism really existed. Like, she is following in the foots of her mother, and she is a friend to the LGBTQ. Because what she does is, in 1827, I had to look up the date, I couldn't remember. In 1827, she helps Isabel Robinson and Mary Diana Dodds, whose pen name is David Lindsay, to escape to France as husband and wife. You know, she gets them false passports and everything. Because she's She's just out here helping the lesbians. What you should always do. Always ensure to help your lesbians. That's just facts. But yeah, um, as proof that no good deed goes unpunished, Mary contracts smallpox when visiting them in Paris. And Mary is basically busy as hell. Like, she is writing and editing... In 1830, she's got the fortunes of Perkin Warbeck. In 1835, Lador. 1837, Faulkner. She contributes to the Cabinet Cyclopedia, ladies' magazines, and after her father dies in 1836, she puts together his letters and works on a memoir. And she works in this for two fucking years. And, and then she gives up. He wrote a lot. So many journals. So many letters. And... Yeah. All the while she's doing this, she is republishing and promoting her late husband's poetry. Like, she is doing all of this work and she is working as an editor and a writer. And not only is she doing all of this, she is constantly giving money to women in need. Women thrown aside for alleged adultery, single mothers, children born out of wedlock... Like, she is there. She is helping. She's helping lesbians elope. Like, she is in the trenches. Now, throughout the rest of her life, Mary never remarries. Like, she's, you know, she's very much in the thought process that Percy was the love of her life. Even though he put her through absolute hell. Not saying I can relate, but I'm just saying. So she jokes about marrying Edward Trelawney, but she ends up disagreeing with him because she ain't happy with his work on Percy's biography. And she is. Well, she spends most of her time ensuring that her surviving child has everything he needs. She sends him to public school in Harrow. And it's really expensive and she's only got a small allowance. So in order to avoid the fees, because it's like a boarding school, um, she moves to Harrow so that he can go as a day student and they can still get that really good education, but doesn't have that extra like financial strain on them. Now, as they get older, by 1840 and 1842... Mary and her son Percy travel across Europe and she is writing these journals like all about her adventures and time over there and it's it's a pretty it's a pretty cute read 
1845, Mary is blackmailed thrice. First, a dude threatens to publish letters she sent him, and her son's pal ends up bribing the police chief to seize the papers and destroy them all. The second one is this fella claims to be the illegitimate son of Lord Byron and has her in, like, Percy's letters, like he's got a collection of them. And so she just pays him off. And then, Percy's cousin says that he's written an awful biography about his sensational and seedy life and he wants £250 to not publish it. And uh, Mary just goes, no. Like, she just, publish it if you want, mate. Try. It's fine. Like, go ahead. Um, He doesn't. <laughs> yeah. So, well played, Mary. Well played. Now, in 1848, Percy Florence Shelley marries Jane Gibson St. John. And Mary ends up living with them in Sussex and, like, for part of the year and like Chester Square in London so when they're in London she's in London when they're in Sussex she's in Sussex and she also goes traveling with them now throughout this as well from when she's like 39 years old that's a lie when she's like 42 years old she is suffering migraines and bouts of paralysis and this goes on for fucking years. Like, this, like, between the migraines and, you know, the body freezing, it actually stops her writing and at some point even reading. And over time, Mary is getting increasingly ill and it turns out she has a brain tumour. And on the 1st of February, 1851, Mary Shelley passes away in Chester Square, London. Now, she wanted to be buried in St Pancras Churchyard with her parents. But her son, he he didn't think it was good enough. He thought it was a shithole, basically. And he had her buried at St Peter's Church, which was closer to him. Because he didn't want her too far from him. And on the first anniversary of her death, Percy Florence Shelley and his wife Jane, they open her box desk and inside they find locks of her deceased children's hair, a shared notebook of Mary and Percy Bysshe Shelley and some ashes and the remains of Percy's heart, wrapped in his love poems for her. Now, Mary Shelley, even to the modern day, like, people try and rewrite her story, they try and talk over her and her achievements, and they try to paint her as this one novel author, this one-hit wonder, as opposed to being a professional writer. She was a professional writer for the majority of her life. She was editing, she was writing, she was creating, she was helping others. She wrote novels, many novels, which are really fucking good, by the way. You should definitely read them. Like, go check them out. They're, they're brilliant. And she created science fiction. A teenager, a teenage girl, created an entire genre and... Even in recent years, people are working hard to try and denounce that and cover up and act like this this isn't a fucking amazing achievement when we all know it is. She deserves respect. She deserves to be credited for all of her work. And so ends the story of Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin Shelley, the OG goth babe. Fucking love Mary Shelley. I do. I do absolutely do. And if you liked my retelling of her tale, her story, her life, 
feel free to rate and review five stars and donate to my PayPal. I would just be kind. I would love it. <laughs> so yeah, um, if you liked rate and review, you can follow me on the socials. I'm on Instagram and X, formerly known as Twitter, TikTok. Um, I'm more active on Instagram than at other, um, other places. I'm on Facebook, but there's so much hassle with that right now. So if you really want to follow me, that's the best place to be. And yeah, um, recommendation time. So for listening, you should join the Patreon where later this week I'll be reading the story Murder on the Christmas Express. And uh, <laughs> I'm so excited for that. Um, for reading, I am going to suggest... The Tuesday Club Muddles by Agatha Christie. And did I do watching or listening? Oh, for watching, go watch the Marvels, actually, because it is a fun film. It's not, like, trauma and depressing. It's just good fun. It is a light-hearted superhero movie. Is it perfect? No. But just, it's not as awful as people say it is. It's a good film. Is it great? No, but it's good. And it's fun. And not everything has to be made for straight white men. I'm just saying. But anyway, um, my voice is starting to go again. So I am going to bid you all good night. Adios. Au revoir. Au revoir, my friends. Bye-bye.